0: Mark's Gospel, the account of the feeding of 5,000 with only five loaves and two fishes. That day, Jesus taught his disciples another lesson about faith. Another time when Jesus demonstrated his ability to minister to the needs of the people. And then you move from Mark's Gospel to that of John, and you spent the past four weeks looking at a single chapter. The sixth chapter of John's Gospel. I don't know if we've ever spent that much time on a single chapter before. Well, at least not in the last three years. (laughs) We seem to be hearing the same lesson over and over again. But when we switch to John, we heard about Jesus. It's as though John picked up the story where Mark had left off. We read of Jesus walking after his men who were rowing in the boat against a heavy wind. And he caught up with them, and he got in the boat, and he said, Don't be afraid calm to see, and he taught them another lesson about his power over nature and the elements. Jesus never passed up an opportunity to to teach another lesson to those who were following him. And in today's reading, we have an example of this again. It's our last reading from the sixth chapter of John. But let's go back for for a moment and attempt to to put the readings of the past several weeks together and look at them as a whole and see how they led up to this morning's reading, these last verses from the sixth chapter of John's Gospel. At this point in Jesus' ministry, the Jewish people were seeking one who would appear in their midst, fill their physical needs, and deliver them from the rule of this foreign power. And along comes Jesus. Some of his followers saw Jesus as one who could heal the sick. He could feed the hungry, maybe. Just maybe this is the one who might overthrow the oppressive yoke of the Romans and return the Jewish nation to the glory days of David. This was the mood. This was the mindset. This was the stage under which Jesus had come. The events of today's lessons and the events that lead up to it are mentioned in each of the Gospels. And although the synoptic writers use almost the same words to describe the events, though the author of John, as he's so prone to do, takes a totally different approach in relating the story to his readers. While describing the feeding of the multitude and the other events that preceded today's lesson, each of the synoptic gospel writers is true to his own style and form as they detail these events in the life of Jesus. But we see John taking a totally different approach, relating the same events, as usual, John seems to, to want us to, to dig a little deeper, to understand and appreciate the, the deep inner meaning that can only be found from digging below the immediate surface. The feeding of the 5,000 is one of the few miracles included in the book of John. John doesn't seem to be all that much interested in miracles, but the feeding of the multitude is one of the three miracle events included in each of the four Gospels. So we have to understand the whole story as something that everyone agreed needed to be told and pinned in their own individual accounts of Jesus' story. But thanks to John, we have another window through which to better see and understand Christ's ministry and His message. While the timeline and, and the approach sometimes differ, the message is the same. While the synoptic writers focus on Jesus' preaching about the Kingdom of God John primarily preaches and focuses his message on the Lordship of Christ, on demonstrating that Christ was, in fact, the Son of God. Ever since Jesus had fed the multitude large crowds had begun to, to follow Him and listen more closely to His teachings, that heard how He had healed the sick, how He had caused the lame to walk and the blind to see, and they, they wanted to be near this man of God. On the hillside, Jesus had acknowledged that man has physical needs as well as spiritual. And with the help of that young boy, he ministered to the people's physical needs. But that's not a part of this morning's lesson, but it helps lead up to where we want to be in that stage of the lesson. The next day, the crowds had followed Jesus to Capernaum, and he knew why they'd come. He spoke to the people and he said, You're looking for me not because of the signs that you've seen, because you ate the food, and you had all you wanted, and now you want more. As tragic as it is in today's modern world, we still have people around the world today on the verge of starvation in Kenya and Sudan and Ethiopia, countries that have been ravaged by war and famine. These are people that look to their political leaders for food and shelter for the fulfillment of their physical needs. But Jesus knew that in the hearts and the minds of the people, He knew that they needed more than their physical needs met. He said, you're back because you want to be fed again, not because you understand what's going on. He knew even if if they didn't, that their spiritual hunger was more important than their physical hunger. During the ensuing dialogue that took place, Jesus took the opportunity to remind the crowd that God has fed the the Israelites during the time of Moses with manna from heaven. He reminded them that the manna had satisfied their physical needs in the wilderness. But then he went on to explain his real message. He told them that he had a bread that would feed them for all eternity. The people said, Lord, give us that bread. You know, it's kind of like the Samaritan woman at the well. Remember, Jesus told her that He could provide her with living water and she'd never thirst again. And she said, give me that water. I think here's where Jesus made a big mistake, though. Because He got straight to the heart of His message without any sugar coating. He said, I am the bread of life that's come down from heaven. And if you eat of My body and drink of My blood, you will have life everlasting. Jesus said, your forefathers ate man and they died. But I'm the living bread, come down from heaven, and if you'll eat of this bread, you'll live forever. With this direct approach, Jesus shows us two things. We see that it's not always easy to understand God's will and purpose for our lives when we're focusing on our physical needs rather than our spiritual needs. And we read that that many of the people turned away from following Jesus because they couldn't grasp the relationship of God, the Son of God, and the Father. They couldn't grasp how this carpenter who they all knew could come down from heaven. Jesus said, I've come down from my Father in heaven. And the crowd said, this is Joseph's son. What's he talking about? The second thing that Jesus shows us is that we can't gauge the spiritual value of one's ministry by its popularity. Jesus told the people the message that they needed to hear, even though many didn't like it and others didn't understand it. And still others were alienated by what they heard. That's the problem that we have, I think, in too many of our churches today. We have preachers who are telling the congregations what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear, what God wants them to hear. Scriptures tell us that many turned away because of the harsh words. Is that why some preachers are hesitant to preach the gospel today? They don't want their congregation to turn away? They'd rather sugarcoat the gospel rather than tell it like it is. They don't want to offend anyone by speaking the truth. Jesus spoke at the cost of losing the crowd. This was not peace at any cost preaching. This was not, let's check the polls and see what the mood of the people is kind of preaching. This wasn't, let's not rock the boat kind of preaching. This was not, let's make sure this is politically correct kind of preaching. This was truth at any price. kind of preaching. It's what Rob Roy would have called being true to yourself no matter what the cost. That's the kind of preaching he was talking about. And I hope that's the kind of preaching that you hear each Sunday morning when you come together. I hope it's the kind of preaching that you expect to hear when you come here on Sunday morning. Jesus, through His example, demonstrated to each of us that we must be witnesses to the truth no matter what the consequence. The scripture tells us that after this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer walked with him. You'll recall that Jesus had many disciples, men and women, who followed after him and listened to his teachings. Jesus said, the truth will make you free. But to some of these followers, the truth had scared them away. They were offended and repelled by Jesus' words, eat my body and drink my blood. After seeing the reaction of many of those who had been following him, Jesus may well have been wondering if the dedication to his apostles, could they stand the stress and strain of these events? Where was their faith? These were the very ones who would soon be left to carry on the message of God's love for all people when Jesus was gone from them. And he must have asked himself, are they getting it? Or are they like the others, confused and afraid? Will they too go away after I'm gone? And here, finally, I think we arrive at the climax of today's lesson. I believe the heart of the entire sixth chapter comes right now. For the past four weeks, everything has been leading up to this moment. And Jesus looks into the face of the twelve and he asks this question, Do you also wish to go away? Will you also go away? When we go back and we look at the Synoptic Gospels, we find a, the similar event occurring, but the question posed by Jesus is different. In each of the other Gospel accounts, Jesus asked the question, Who do the people say that I am? And after hearing several different answers, he asked the disciples, What about you? Who do you say that I am? And it's to that question that we hear the account of Peter's confession that we're also familiar with. The one that's recorded in each of the Synoptic Gospels, he said, You're the Christ the Son of God. Now, I don't want to take anything away from that account. But John recalls a different question and a different answer. There's no doubt that the events are the same. But it's so often the case, John, John, John seems to just dig a little deeper. His memory is a little bit better. He goes below the surface and he offers us an additional insight into Jesus' words and deeds. Jesus needed to know whether, after nearly three years together, whether those that had been so close to him were ready to carry on after he was gone. Had they begun to grasp the knowledge of what it was they were becoming a part of? Each of the gospel writers recorded that after Jesus introduced the metaphor of the living bread and the challenge to eat his body and drink his blood, each writer states that many of the followers turned away from him. But unlike the other writers who then have Jesus asking those closest to Him, who do you, they say that I am, <clears throat> it's John who remembers Jesus asking, will you also go away? Can you imagine the pain and the heartache that was going through the mind of Jesus? His ministry here on earth was rapidly drawing to an end and God's chosen people were turning away from Him. But Peter, Peter, the man of all extremes, the most photographed man in the New Testament, the man who reached unexpected heights and unbelievable depths, the man who could be passionate and impulsive and affectionate, ready at times to dare more than his faith could handle, the man who at Pentecost would show himself to be the natural leader and spokesman for the Twelve. Peter looked into Jesus' face and said, go away. Where would we go? many of you. I don't know if you can associate with Peter, Peter, but I can. I can relate with Peter when he said, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. And then he denied him three times. I can relate to Peter when he said, I'll stand by you, Lord. And then he lost his temper and cut off man's ear. And been many times when I fail to understand God's message and I too have felt his demands seem too harsh. Times when I couldn't discern his will for my life and I become frustrated. There have been times when my understanding of his power overshadowed my awareness of his love. Times when I failed to recognize that his grace toward me has no limits. But praise God. Today I can say with Peter, where would I go? Who else can teach me the things I need to know? Who else can give me the things I need to have? Who else will be there every time I stumble and fall? Peter's response expressed a faith ventured on a possibility of a truth. With time, this developed into something sturdier than a simple faith. It became a faith that had grown out of a knowledge, a knowledge that was a result of a personal experience, a personal relationship with the Son of God. It's because of this personal relationship that Peter would go on to say, You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. It's because of Peter's humanness that he would one day deny even knowing Jesus. But it was because of his personal relationship that he could beg for God's forgiveness and his faith would remain strong because he knew he had God's forgiveness. It was because of Christ's love for Peter. After his resurrection, he told Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. It was that Peter would stand in front of the people on the day of Pentecost to proclaim the message that he heard this day that through the body and blood of Jesus Christ, all might receive eternal life. Jesus knew that we all have physical needs. He would tell us today that the definition of any successful life must include helping others. God's pleased with those things we do here on earth to help those in need in our communities. He's pleased when we reach out to others in Christian love. Jesus acknowledged that man has, has physical and social and economic needs, and he, he took steps to minister to those needs. But there comes a time when he reminds each of us that our greatest need, that need to which we must give our first attention, is our spiritual need. You see, we can have all the things in the world and be dead spiritually. We may never miss a meal and yet be starving for lack of spiritual food in our lives. We may have untold wealth and yet be spiritually bankrupt because we don't have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Several years ago I, I was reading the Medford book. Some of you may be familiar with that series. It was a wonderful series of books about a, an Episcopal priest in a small East Coast town. I remember reading a comment that, that Father Tim, the main character of the story, made one time in one of his books. He said, we are a church that has experienced institutional salvation. And what I believe that he meant was that we come together, we worship, we fellowship, we say the words, we perform the acts. But then Father Tim went on to say, but what is really important is our individual personal relationship with Christ. And we don't talk about that nearly enough. I liked Father Tim and I agreed with what he had to say about the church. I believe that's the question that Jesus is asking His disciples, when He said, will you also go away? And Jesus is asking each of us that same question here this morning. Within the Episcopal Church, we may not ask ourselves that question very often. We may, not talk, we may talk a lot about liturgy and common prayer and fellowship with the saints, but not a lot about individual personal relationships with Joshua was pretty straightforward with the children of Israel, when he challenged them to choose this day who they would serve. This is the message that we hear from the prophets throughout the Old Testament. God's chosen people were constantly being reminded that they couldn't serve two masters. And they were repeatedly being told that God wants to be in fellowship with His children. The psalmist this morning reminds us that God watches over us, and His ears are open to our every cry. Jesus came and died for you and me so that we might be able to have that personal relationship with the one who loves us even more than we can imagine. I invite each of you this morning to ask yourself that question. Is my personal relationship with Jesus what I want it to be? Is it what I believe it should be? And if not, or if you're not sure, what are you doing about it? Peter said, we've come to believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. That's what we say each week when we recite the creed. That's what we say at the, the time of our baptism and our confirmation. Listen closely to the words of the, of the baptismal covenant and think about these words that were said at your confirmation. These words affirm what it is that we say we believe as Christians. And these are the promises that we've all made. We promise to renounce Satan and evil desires. We promise to continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship. We promise to be a penitent people and to proclaim the good news of Christ and to love our neighbors ourselves. Paul described the armor of God that he's given to each of us in order to be able to, to ward off the evil forces that surround us at every turn. Paul prayed that we might declare boldly the message of the good news and he challenged the people in Ephesus to do the same thing. I believe Paul would, would offer you and I that same challenge this morning. May the words of Peter be the words of you and I this morning. Where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. May you truly come to know and understand the meaning and significance of that powerful statement. And may you live your life accordingly in the days to come. Amen.